This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Sarah Chapalak. This is episode three of the story of Tibnean Bridge and the massacre of three Irish soldiers on peacekeeping duty in Lebanon 40 years ago. In episode two, we heard how Michael McAlevey confessed to Detective Tom Connolly and his team that he had murdered Gary Morrow, Peter Burke and Thomas Murphy in October 1982. Did you not know I'm a fucking werewolf? I shoot everybody. I go around and shoot up this fucking world. And we heard from Colette Morrow, the widow of Gary Morrow. Gary, like Michael McAlevey, was from Northern Ireland. Colette recalls once meeting McAlevey on the train down to Dublin as the men prepared for their deployment to Lebanon. Gary said, Colette, one of my men, he said, he's going out to Lebanon. I said, oh, for God's sake, I said, can we not just stay one time on our own? And he said, I can't. He said, he's out to see me. So we sat down. I tried to make conversation with him, but he'd stare at me and his eyes would go huge and he'd just look out the window. I tried again and again. His whole neck went red and his face went red. So I said, this this is an oddball. I always remember picking up a book to pretend to read it because I just got very... didn't like the feeling I was getting around him. I wasn't even reading it. And I felt him staring at me and I wouldn't look up. And there was an area in the newspaper where there was nothing on, you know, like a blank. And he was drawing my profile. And when I seen the profile, my profile was perfect. Very good artist. And I just looked at him and he, again, he stared at me and looked out the window. And I said, um, did you have a good time visiting your, your relations, your mother and father? That's when he really stared at me. So I might have hit something on the nail. But I didn't know where it was. But his mother had left um, a long time. I don't know how long. Left them as kids when they were young. The Defence Forces, like all militaries, have their own system of military law which runs parallel to the civil law. Conor Gallagher is the Irish Times crime correspondent. So if a soldier or any member of the Defence Forces commits a crime while on active duty, they're typically dealt with under uh, military law. Instead of a jury, they have a panel of seven officers. And instead of a judge, they have a judge advocate who's usually a colonel in the Defence Forces. I went to cover that. I thought it'd take a couple of weeks. It lasted three months. Former RTE security correspondent Tom McCochran. This is the first time that uh, you had a court-martial of this nature. I mean, there were three, three murders, and uh, by one of their own. It, it, it was a piece of criminal history in, in the Defence Force. You had the panel of uh, officers. You had a chair there for witnesses. You had uh, a big core of people from uh, the media, from home and abroad, because it was a multinational force with a great interest in it. You had relatives who were there. It's very hard on them. Corporal Morrow, he was married and his wife had a baby girl, I think, shortly before the court-martial began. Harry was born on the 14th of July, so she stayed in the Coombe Hospital. They wouldn't discharge me. I had to stay in for two weeks. So every night I used to go back to the Coombe. From the court-martial? Yeah, yeah, I used to leave early in the morning and go to the court-martial. The court-martial might have started around 10 o'clock maybe and it would be over by lunchtime. So I'd make it back then, because I was breastfeeding I didn't look up, I didn't look around, because I didn't want to see him. I just, I got kind of, just having a baby, I was nervy and everything else going. 
I don't want to see him, I don't want to see him. And my mother said, now, Kat, don't lose your cool when you see him. Then marching the marching McAlevey. And that's when I started going, you know, shaking, going into shock. On the table, uh, I always remember the little figurine, probably the three of them, but little figurine, with what looked like spears going through the body. And uh, they were like, say, long wooden toothpicks going through the body. They were showing the trajectory of the bullets that had gone through each of them. And that was very hard on the family to, to watch that because they weren't seeing a small figurine. They were seeing their, seeing their son or the husband there, you know. They died a terrible death. I don't know whether you know how bad it was. Private Peter Burke's mother, Mary Burke. They were shot seven times in the legs. Colette's husband was able to crawl and he came down from the hill and then he executed him. He executed Morrow in the head and Thomas. For some reason or other, I don't know why, he executed Peter from here. And we saw his rifle was broken, that he must have hit them with it. He broke his rifle on them then afterwards. They had sent out their young sons at 1920 and a great adventure. And uh, here they were sitting in the court-martial looking at this other young soldier early 20s as well, 21, 22, been told that he had opened fire on, on their sons. And we sat in the court in the Curra and, and heard this and saw this fella smirk. One of the people to give evidence in the court-martial was Paul Clark, the soldier who was first on the scene at Tibneen Bridge. I went into the court-martial and I sat right across from McAlevey, face to face, and that stare... He has this, as we call it, the thousand-yard stare. And he just sat there, motionless. He had wide, staring eyes. And it reminded me of exactly of Malcolm MacArthur. So, Connor, what happened in the Curra during that court-martial in the summer of 83? So, McAlevey pleaded not guilty. And he was represented by a barrister called Paddy McEntee, who was one of the most renowned barristers of, of his generation and, and, and would have been kind of the go-to guy for anyone facing a serious uh, criminal charge, including murder charges. Probably the best senior counsel in the country. He was brilliant. He was class. And we really thought he had it. We really thought he was going to get away with it. McEntee's first and most important job was to get the evidence of McAlevey's confession thrown out. If his statements of admission hadn't been ad- admitted in, in evidence, there would have been no evidence. And to do this, he tried to create an image in the mind of, of the court-martial panel of uh, an atmosphere of oppression that McAlevey was under wh- when he made these uh, confessions. So McAlevey had been in this form of quasi-custody for nearly two to three months He'd witnessed an incredibly shocking, traumatising event, the death of his, his, his three fellow soldiers. He was accompanied by MPs at all times in Gallows Green and developed quite friendly relationships with them. But then, according to McEntee, the MPs received a no-fraternisation order, which meant that they weren't allowed to be pally with McAlevey anymore. I don't give a fuck who you are. You're no different to the fucking MPs. So McAlevey was isolated, he was deteriorating mentally and physically, and more than anything else, he just wanted to go home. 
The transcript was mention of a Christmas party where, as is tradition, they raise a toast in the army to the president of Ireland, and McAlevey refused the toast, saying something to the effects of, to hell with him, he won't send me home. When the Garda teams come to question him, McEntee puts forward an image of the guards kind of trying to use some maybe sharp practices to get him to confess. He argued that McAlevey's constitutional rights had been breached, that he hadn't been given proper legal advice, all that type of thing. There's no accusation of violence being used, but the barrister says, you know, the guards showed him distressing pictures from the scene, that one guard gave him a leaflet with a prayer on it. And there was some suggestion about uh, uh, dehydration and, and uh, suffering from heat and all that type of thing. They implied that the statement he'd made already, uh, saying they'd come under attack, wasn't good enough, and created the impression that the only way McAlevey was going to be able to get home to his family was by telling them what they wanted to hear. So that's why McAlevey made his statement. He just wanted to get home. That's why he admitted it. Um, and therefore the court-martial should not allow that evidence. The court-martial took a different view. The panel of officers considered the whole matter and decided to allow the statements in. And said, you know, the guards had followed procedures, as had the army. It was a very difficult situation, but they dealt with it as best they could. And so the statement was admitted. So McEntee was left to fall back on, again, getting home to the court-martial that, OK, his confession has been admitted into the record, but... He also made another statement previous to that saying he'd nothing to do with the men's debts. So you can't trust one statement over the other, you know. It's possible that both statements are completely wrong. The court-martial panel disagreed and after 33 days of evidence, they returned a guilty verdict. Michael McAlevey was sentenced to life in jail, dishonourably discharged from the army and transferred to Mountjoy Prison in Dublin. Very soon after his conviction, McAlevey lodged an appeal, but that was dismissed as well, with the Chief Justice saying the court-martial had been carried out with exemplary fairness. After that, he seemed to settle into the routine of prison life. Some of McAlevey's time in prison was spent in Port Lease, the state's highest security prison, which is guarded by the army, meaning that for a time, McAlevey was being guarded by some of his former comrades. I, I was the NCO in charge of the roof the day he was brought in, and he was brought out for exercise straight away. And my 2IC, George O'Dowd, seen him and said, McAlevey is down, down below. And it, it wasn't a good feeling at all, you know. It's hard, it's, it's hard to describe the feeling for, for soldiers to see a person that, you know, all you, all you want to do is take him out, you know. And a lot of people wanted to do that. But, you know, you, as I always said, if you've done that, you're worse than he is. Immediately after McAlevey's conviction, a lot of questions were asked about how he was allowed in the army in the first place. You might remember from earlier McAlevey's anti-Semitic abuse towards the two Israeli officers at the checkpoint. I didn't hear what he said. I then called him a few times. Reporting from the Times suggests this was not a one-off outburst and that the young man had a long history of extremist views before entering the army. This is the report which appeared in the Irish Times on September 28, 1983. Private Michael McAlevey was found guilty by a court-martial yesterday of murdering three Irish soldiers in Lebanon last year. McAlevey joined the army in 1979, sometime after leaving St Thomas's Secondary School in Belfast, where he is best remembered by former pupils for his involvement in neo-Nazi groups, 
Playground fights took place when an anti-Nazi league was formed to oppose these groups. Contemporaries say that McAlevey's main interests as a schoolboy were art, rock and roll and Nazism. A former friend recalled, He wasn't particularly well liked around here because of his extreme political views. He was into fascist politics and the hate business. He was a bit of a weirdo. The newspaper article continues that when McAlevey arrived in Lebanon, he saw a star David on one of the buildings and became quite annoyed and decided to paint over it with a shamrock. And by the way, he also told some of the people who came in response to his urgent message that uh, he blamed the Jews and used phrases like Yids, you know, which is really, really racist, you know. McAlevey's father, James, told the newspaper at the time that while his son did have an interest in Nazi Germany from a historical perspective, he was not a neo-Nazi. We asked Paul Clark if, as a soldier who knew McAlevey at the time, he was aware of any extremist views. Well, I believe there were some remarks past that he's a danger. He he has a lot of Nazi slogans in his uh, locker and signs. Did you see <coughs> any evidence of him being a Nazi? No, I, I never know. Oh. I never saw anything like that. Just, again, it's just rumour. Yeah. An army spokesman told the newspaper at the time that there was limits to how much screening they can do before accepting someone in and that they had to accept uh, soldiers at their word for the most part. Nevertheless, after the conviction, recruitment procedures were tightened up. I mean, I didn't know him. That was the first time I ever met him on the train and I even found him strange. You know, so how come they didn't see that he was strange? You know, was I the only ones with my eyes open? He shouldn't have never been allowed to go over there. He should have been assessed. He was known to have incidents happen that were very serious, that he should have never been allowed to travel, um, you know, uh, in a UN uniform. You know what I mean? Like, even a lot of the soldiers, like, half of them, you know, that spoke to us, all have a story about him. So, like, he wasn't, a, he didn't seem to be a very um, likeable character and did a, a, a lot of things have ha- happened that they should have been aware of. He should have been actually put out of the army. He should have never been allowed. So I think maybe there was lessons learned, you know. Not everyone agrees with this assessment of Michael McAlevey. A few months ago, we went to Belfast to talk to McAlevey's solicitor, Joe Rice. To me, he was an exemplary, not only an exemplary prisoner, but an exemplary person, I'd say, of the custodial context as well. I, I never saw him anything other than been totally, abjectly remorseful and full of regret and uh, sorrow in relation to this uh, extraordinary event. Absolutely not. And I really got to know him very well. And I've seen documentary evidence from at least one West Belfast Irish soldier who was there who sent me letters back uh, to Scotch, the myth and the, the fake news that he was some, some sort of right-wing activist. Nothing could have been further from the truth in my experience. And indeed in medical reports that we saw during this particular time, there was nothing like this picked up. My first direct contact with Michael McAlevey was when he sent a letter to us just before Christmas, the 21st of December 2004, from D-Wing, Mountjoy Prison. Dear Mr Rice, just a note to say that I would like you to represent me and look into my case, thanking you for all your help. And it was repatriation on humanitarian grounds that he sought to Megabry 
back in October 2007, really so that he could be closer to his family, his immediate family. McAleary was ultimately successful in his bid to be transferred up north. This is something that did not go down well with the victims' families or the military community. Once he was gone over that so-called border, he was gone. We, we, we lost anything. But the government here agreed to it. Everybody was against it. Everybody was against it. And But, you know, they, they gave in. Three years later, in 2010, McAlevey was released from Mahaberry Prison in County Antrim following directions from the Independent Parole Commission. Here's Private Peter Burke's father, Noel Burke. All I can say is it seems like he's out enjoying life. But we have been sentenced to our life, which is remembering life should mean life. And that is it. In the years since his release, not much is known about McAlevey's movement. Actually, one of our guys told him the story. He actually rang me straight away. He said, you won't believe who I had in my taxi. I said, who? See, McAlevey. I said, I don't believe it. See, yeah, no. He never said that, you know, until he was about to get out of the car. And he, he remarked about a sticker that Dan had on his dash about military brothers and arms. And... Uh, it was when Dan looked around, he, he, you know, he actually looked at the guy and he, and he knew him. He recognised him straight away as McAlevey. We do know that he went to France and married a French woman who he met in Ireland. He is still in France today. Connor, you and I have been working on this for a few months. We tried to get in touch with and speak to McAlevey, but this request was denied through a family member. Now, when we first started working on this project, it was clear that this wasn't much of a murder mystery. It was obvious that McAlevey carried out these murders, regardless of the complaints around his detention and the court-martial. The real mystery is, why did McAlevey do these murders? And it would be nice to have a definite answer, but the truth is, we'll probably never really know. While working on this podcast, and at the end of, I think, pretty much every interview, we asked the same question. Why do you think Michael McAlevey did this? I think it was just a complete a, a meltdown, mentally, on that particular day. I would think that that's what happened. Just a few seconds, he lost his temper. He didn't like taking orders. He didn't like my husband. So he just didn't like taking orders. You had to be a psychopath to do something like that. Because he didn't know, he might have, he knew Gary. He might have known Thomas because he probably served him. But he didn't know Peter from Buttons, you know. And, like, even to do that, so he, he had to be psychopathic, even to the detective, Jerry O'Carroll, is it? He said on Joe Duffy, this man should never be released, he's a psychopath. So I, I, I'd love to actually ask him, why, you know, why... Why not just give them a fry? You know, if you don't want to be there, give them a fry and then you'd be sent home. You'd be repatriated straight away. But you wouldn't go go, go and destroy three, three lives, three families' lives, three extended families' lives, units, the thousands of people that he, he you know, upset and hurt. Just unbelievable, you know. My family, the moral side, my husband's side, devastated. I mean, I ripped him, I ripped him apart. I seen it, I seen it when I'd go up and visit him. How torn they were. It, it took away something that should have never been taken, you know. I, it was horrible to see it, you know. 
But that makes me sad. No. They didn't. Mary was brokenhearted. I still think of Mary to this day. And they killed her. That killed her. And people just say that, ah, that she was never the same. But she was never the same. Neither of them. And the sisters and brothers, you know, it broke up a family. And McAlevey and is the one that is responsible for that. And the government are responsible for allowing him out. Uh, this is Peter's last letter that he wrote on the, on the night he was murdered. Well, as soon as you get this letter, I will only have a couple of days to go and it will probably be the best of, it, of the lot. All the new lads are out too, so it's good to see all the new faces and make a good difference when you are on duty with them. I am looking forward to seeing you all. So until next Wednesday, best of love from Peter. Kiss, 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 kiss. See you all soon. Comrades and relations of Morrow, Murphy and Burke hold a small graveside ceremony every year. But this year, to mark the 40th anniversary of their deaths, they gathered in Stony Batter at a memorial commemorating Ireland's lost peacekeepers. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow veterans, veterans of the 2nd Battalion Association and the 5th Battalion Association, we gathered here this morning to mark the 40th anniversary of the murders of Peter, Gregory and Thomas. To pay tribute to the memory of three young men who lost their lives serving in the cause of world peace under the flag of the United Nations and to show support for the families in keeping their memories alive. Thanks to everyone who spoke to us for this podcast. Paul Clark, Colette Morrow, Mary and Noel Burke, Tom McCochran, Tom Connolly and Joe Rice. This episode was researched and reported by me, Sarah Hapollock, and by Connor Gallagher and produced by Declan Conlon. In the news, we'll be back on Monday.